is Sit Rap on VFBS with Kate Chabot. The Charles Hitler Putin story takes another turn. Meanwhile, Putin's got a new best friend. They've signed the biggest gas deal ever. But what's in it for China? Do American veterans really get such a good deal from their government? And proof it's not that easy getting a military cross. We speak to one former soldier about how he earned his. Russia has expressed its indignation at comments attributed to Prince Charles, who reportedly likened Putin's Ukraine policy to that of Adolf Hitler in an off-the-cuff remark during a trip to Canada. Today, Russia's deputy ambassador to Britain met an official from the Foreign Office for clarification of the remarks. I'm joined by the BBC's correspondent in Moscow, Bridget Kendall, and BFBS defence analyst Christopher Lee, who's here in the studio. Hello to both of you. Uh, Bridget, Russia has now responded to these remarks. What's been said? Yes, this came in the regular weekly foreign ministry press um, briefing uh, at, the, at the Russian foreign ministry. Up until now, the Russians have been rather restrained. But he, his language was pretty strong this morning. He said, if true, the remarks did no credit to the future monarch. And he also attacked the British media, saying it was unacceptable, outrageous and dishonourable of them to use the British royal family to whip up a propaganda campaign against Russia on what was already a contentious issue, the situation in Ukraine. And he said Moscow has demanded this official explanation from the British government. And in the context of everything else that's been happening, what does it mean for Britain's relationship with Russia? Well, uh, the foreign ministry says they're waiting for clarification from the foreign office of what exactly was said. And any consequences will depend on what they're told. But clearly this isn't going to help relations. It's only going to make by the bilateral chill between Russia and Britain worse because these are already quite it's quite strong language from the Russian government. Indignation, outrageous. Uh, privately, I think, though, from what I'm gathering from Russian officials, they think that they've more to gain from taking the high ground and not exacerbating the row too much more because they firmly think that it's the British media and possibly Prince Charles, if these remarks were confirmed, who are cast in a bad light by the remarks. Mm. I think they don't think it helps them to keep milking it. Christopher, assuming you're advising the Foreign Office, what would you say? Well, the first thing I'd say is to grab hold of the old lady in Canada who is supposed to have said this and said, did he really say that? Then I would Put a, put a note through to Clarence House and say, look, I wonder, did your boy say this at all? So let's, the Russians have got it right here. They mm. say, if true. And so that's, that's a perfect example. But mm. what is interesting, if it were true that he said it, should he have said it? And secondly, when he becomes king... Any thoughts on that? Should he, uh, what, whether he should have said it or mm-hmm. not? Um, he Do you probably, think it was a private conversation with an individual? Well, it seemed, an, it, all the indications are in his mind, I'm sure, is that the uh, the way, that the talks that went on before, let's say, the annexation of Crimea were very similar to the talks and the statements that came out from Germany before the, 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 the Second World War. And therefore, you can actually say, oh, well, there are similarities. But the point is, should he have said it? And the answer would be, uh, I imagine from the Foreign Office, I wish he hadn't. Mm -hmm. Bridget, uh, presidential elections in Ukraine on Sunday, who's likely to win? 
That's right. That's a big focus here in Russia. It's a huge story. I must say, in the Russian media, there's been much more about what's going on in Ukraine. Almost nothing about Prince Charles. The front runner by a long way in the Ukrainian election is a business magnate called Pyotr Poroshenko. He's pro-opposition and he's critical of Russia. Last summer, Russia banned his chocolates from being exported to Russia when tensions were rising, apparently in disapproval at his political views. Uh, he's not one of the front-liners, front-line opposition leaders who were on the independent square in Kiev during the protests earlier this year. So if he were to win, I think that would be seen as a good choice for both the West and Russia, a moderate, someone prepared to be flexible and pragmatic. He's up against a raft of candidates, including the flamboyant former Prime Minister Yulia Tymoshenko, who's not doing that well, and some pro-Russian candidates from the East as well, and also some far-right Ukrainian nationalists. But the picture so far is that none of them are doing well, and he, representing the centre, the middle ground, is doing much better. So the big question is, could he win outright, which would give him a huge mandate to go forward, or would he have to fight a second round? And if he does win outright, then that could be quite good for Ukraine, because there's still a question of whether the Kremlin is going to recognise these elections. Mm. But if he got a lot of votes, then that would give him a lot of uh, political authority in Ukraine nonetheless. And is everyone going to be able to vote? What about the disputed regions? That's right. The, 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 there are two troubled regions, two out of more than two dozen, which are where people are going to be voted, Donetsk and Luhansk. There's reports of fighting today, quite bad fighting, and uh, trickling reports that we're getting of election organisers not being able to set up polling stations, or some having their voter rolls being confiscated or being intimidated and saying don't take part in this election, some voters being threatened, being told not to vote. But what's not clear is quite how widespread it is. Maybe it's just a few dotted areas. It's certainly not the whole of Donetsk or the whole of Luhansk. So really this is one of the key questions of this election. Mm. How many people in the East East are going to be able to vote and how many will vote because if an awful lot of them do there is a possibility it could even take the steam out of the separatist movement because it would show it the, the separatists are standing for only just a very small minority of people. Uh, Christopher, um, this week uh, a major gas deal signed between Russia and China. Significance of this? Uh, the significant, well the first significance of it is that the Russians have been working for about 10 years trying to get this deal and it's a big one. It's the biggest gas deal with China that I think the uh, modern Russia has ever had, 237 uh, billion, billion pounds in this. Um, long way to go yet. The, uh, the Russians will have to build a pipeline from uh, Siberia uh, to China to get the, get the gas through. That's likely to cost them 60, 60 billions or so. But the importance is, it, you start thinking in hearing terms, uh, Bridget, sort of things like um, new strategic energy alliance and mm. things like this and uh, trying to get a new relationship in the Far East. You know, China wasn't very happy with what went on in, in, in Crimea. But the, the, the Chinese... You know, they want more than gas out of this. And so it, perhaps we'll have uh, uh, President Putin's uh, Russia supporting, sort of, again, new strategic alliances in the Far but, East. But has there been much in the papers about this deal? There's a lot of optimism oh, yes, over it's it. Been it's been a massive subject on television in the papers. Up until the last minute, it wasn't quite clear whether they'd clinched the deal. As Chris was saying, they spent 10 years arguing about this. And the Chinese wanted to drive a hard bargain. And the Russians, I think they're a bit ambivalent about it. I mean, classically, historically, the Russians have been a bit wary about allowing the Chinese to get involved too much in developing 
Siberia in case too many of them came across the border and decided to stay. Mm. Mm. But uh, this this visit of President Putin to Shanghai, they signed lots of other interesting agreements too uh, to develop agriculture together, lots of high-tech projects, and significantly a bridge across the Amur River from China into Siberia. The Russians have never agreed to that before. And so given the crisis in Ukraine, which is causing this rift between Russia and the West, Russian commentators are here saying that could have been a catalyst which allowed them to eventually come to a price. Maybe Russia came down a bit. But also because Mr Putin thinks, well, maybe it is time to start reorientating towards Asia, not just for economic reasons, the booming economies of Asia and China in particular, but also for security reasons, not to depend on selling oil to Europe and maybe looking for other ways to have a more strategic alliance with China. All right, Bridget Kendall in Moscow, thanks for your time today. Debris has been found in the Atlantic where search teams are looking for four British sailors. The information's been passed to the US Coast Guard who say they've now combed more than 9,000 square miles of ocean. An RAF Hercules C-130 joined the search. Our reporter Kath Brazier has spoken to the man in charge of Army Sailing, retired Lieutenant Colonel Alan Flavel, and asked him what the crew might have done to survive. Once you started to take on water seriously, um, what I would have done, and most of the Army guys would have done, is we would have deployed the life raft still attached to the boat, um, and we would start to put uh, provisions into the life raft, water, food, flares, take the flare pack off the boat. But they would have stayed with the boat. Um, that is the procedure. It's to stay with the boat until the very last moment. Um, the boat is a, you know, 40 foot of white and easy spotted, whereas the life rafts are orange. Um, life rafts on that boat, I would have said it had a crew of 10, so you maybe would have had one 10-man or two six-man life rafts. So they might have deployed two life rafts, tied them together so they didn't float away. Um, and then get into the life raft at the last safe moment. Normally they say step up to the life raft. That means the boat's sinking. Um, and then you cut yourself away. What I would have done also is taken the EPIRB, which is an electronic radio indicating beacon, which gives you um, communication straight to a satellite. It will, a bit like a GPS, it will tell you your position um, and that needs to go under the water to be set off. So I'd have got into the life raft with the main EPIRB, which has got quite a long battery life, probably up to a week. Stuff that in the water once I was in the, um, in the life rafts, so we had something indicating our position, and then left the yacht. We would have floated away from the yacht. Life rafts are very stable and don't sink. And um, given what you, what you know and um, what you assume they will have done, do you agree with the, the search resuming and you know, do you think there's still a possibility that they could be alive? Absolutely. I totally agree with the search um, being resumed. I think they're probably alive, providing their life rafts worked. Um, if they're in the life rafts, they would probably put on their good provisions for a week, even two weeks. The human body is very resourceful. So I firmly believe they're alive and I really hope they are as well. That was Lieutenant Colonel Alan Flavel. Christopher, two weeks ago you were sailing one of these yachts. What are they like? Yeah, it's, uh, it's a Beneteau Benito Fast 40. <clears throat> I was racing the uh, the 37, but basically the same boat and just about sort of uh, stretched. They're very good boats. Um, they're good sea boats. They've got a very deep keel, which is what you need for the Atlantic, especially during Atlantic crossing. Don't forget they've been across there and they're coming back. But, you know, listening to uh, the Colonel there, uh, Colonel Flavor, saying, well, what you do, you step up into the life raft and then you do all this stuff. I tell you, 
You've got 20 foot waves in the Atlantic. You're being battered around. And I saw the photograph of that the, 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 the container ship had of a yacht hull. And that yacht hull did not have a keel. Now, without getting too dramatic, when you're in such r- lousy weather, you're all clipped on. Mm. The minute that keel goes, the boat turns turtle and you're clipped on. There is no easily, orderly way of actually getting into the life raft unless you've done it before that's happened. Hmm. Now, this isn't the only search the RAF is involved in at the moment. An RAF Sentinel reconnaissance aircraft involved in the search for the missing schoolgirls in Nigeria. Yeah, and there's another search going off off the coast of, Ab- uh, of Aberdeenshire as well. I mean, search and rescue... I mean, think of all the headlines from uh, from Prince William. So search and rescue is something which the Royal Air Force is doing all the time. But this thing is out in the Atlantic. It's closer to the United States, to, closer to uh, the, the East Coast, to Cape Cod, than it is here. How do you get out there? Well, because we managed to get rid of our reconnaissance, our major reconnaissance aircraft, with all the kit on board uh, in the last the defence cuts, yeah, uh, you can't get out there because you haven't got the aircraft. So what do they do? They manage to find a C-130 that's working at the moment, and they get that out there two, three days into the operation. And um, what are you searching with? Well, you're searching with an eyeball. You haven't got any electronics to actually do do, do the job with. Uh, and where was the frigate? Where was the where was the Caribbean frigate that the Navy might have deployed to the area? Not there. Sit rep with Kate Still to come, why Obama's in trouble for the treatment of American veterans and the hard way to get an MC. India has its first parliamentary majority for 30 years, but what does Narendra Modi's victory mean for neighbouring countries and global powers? Uh, Christopher, first of all, remind us what's happened and who this man is. Okay, Narendra uh, Modi is uh, part of the BJP, it's the Janata Party. And uh, in most living memories, there hasn't been an outright victory for the Janus Party. That's it's rather like uh, saying, you know, that, that the Liberals would get into a full government. It was that sort of sensational. Um, the second part of it, of course, is the religious dimension: uh, Sikh, Hindu Sikh, as opposed to uh, Muslim. And that makes a big political difference. Also, he is a man of the business parties. And uh, India's economy is slacked away. What's going to sort of catch up with China isn't. And he says he's going to bring up the, uh, the whole business thing. He's also about to sign a deal which would, which would provide uh, money for Russian military equipment to the Afghan uh, National Army. And that mm. makes a difference. And then you get that's the first sign that you're getting into a, a regional consequence of what's happened there. Yeah, what exactly do you think the consequences will be of this? Well, it's the new relationship will have to be with, uh, uh, with, with, with Pakistan, which is a Muslim country, having to deal with uh, a country since 1947 has been a foe in many ways, nuclear, uh, and, and both nuclear uh, uh, weapon countries, with arguments unsettled since 1947 over Kashmir, and they're going to have to deal with somebody who is ideologi- ideologically totally opposed... I think that will actually work. But how that relationship gets on mm. will entirely determine the relationship between outside countries and the future of Afghanistan. And, and changes at a time when there's combat withdrawal from Afghanistan. Uh, at, a, 
Yeah, there is, but also the crucial part is the relationship with India, uh, with, with Pakistan, and also the Central Asian republics. Uh, that has to be sort of, that has to be worked on, and it is being worked on at the moment. And if you talk to people like Abdullah, Abdullah, who could be the next president, he is very pleased mm. that Modi has got the deal. It is a big, big, big step, and one which the United Kingdom has got to be involved in because they have a special relationship with uh, with India. Okay, and uh, briefly, just talking about some of the other hot spots around in the news this week. So Korea. Yeah, uh, reports this morning that Korean ships, um, warships, North Korea and South Korea ships are shooting each other. Um, no reports that anybody's been hit, but the fact that they're firing off life rounds at each other um, because it, it's, you know, ships probing territorial waters and North Koreans at the moment don't sort of say, go away, you're entering territorial waters, they sort of fire around across the bow and there's a 4.5 quick fire sort of uh, takes up and so the South Koreans, dangerous because the North Koreans are about to carry out another nuclear uh, attack. Thailand, you've got the, gov- uh, the army in Test, Thailand. Test, you mean? Uh, you didn't mean yes. attack, did you? Uh, no, I didn't really mean attack. <laughs> not yet, not yet. I tell you, um, Thailand. Uh, yes, the, military coup. Uh, well, uh, martial law was declared uh, in, in Thailand. Now they're taking over government. That amounts to a military coup. Uh, the uh, Shinawatra uh, Taksin, or old Taksin Shinawatra's uh, government run by his sister, Shinawatra uh, Shinawatra, she's out. She's been in court. And so we now have a military government, and that takes longer to get out than it takes to get in. Uh, China's having problems, uh, big problems problems with terrorism. Uh, bombs went off last night and this morning in China. And down in Africa, Mali, the French were rather, rather hoping to get pull out a, a brigade side, one of their brigade sides, mm. 3,000 men out of Mali. They can't because there's more trouble in Mali, so they've got to keep them there. The United Kingdom has got to sort of almost as an obligation to actually do the logistical supply onto that. All right, let's stay with Africa. 26 elite British soldiers against 2,000 drug-crazed rebels in the heart of West African jungle. No wonder the account of the mission undertaken by ex-platoon in Sierra Leone in 2000 has been called Operation Mayhem. But at stake were the lives of countless civilians and British nationals trying to flee the civil war. Joining me now is Steve Heaney, who earned a military cross for his actions and has written his first account, the first account, of the operation. Steve, good to see you. Um, Just take us back to Sierra Leone in 2000. And what was happening? The chaos. The country was was shrouded in chaos. The government was about to fall. The Sierra Leone National Army was on the verge of of migrating towards what was then the most powerful gang, which was the Revolutionary United Front. Just tell us about about the enemy you were facing. It was largely made up of of young men and women that had been traumatized to such an extent, their villages destroyed, their family members butchered and mutilated, forcing them naturally to take some sort of comfort in joining the RUF who, who willingly supplied them with weapons and drugs and allowed them to live some form of existence. Okay, now you were sent initially on a 48-hour mission to a remote village called Lungi Lol. Uh, what exactly were you supposed to be doing there? Initially, we were deployed for 48 hours with the intention of providing some sort of perimeter force to allow the evacuation of entitled personnel, British passport holders included, from their international airport at Lungi back through Senegal and to the UK. Mm. And tell me what, what it transpired, what actually happened. After the 48-hour period had expired, the mission had had mutated so that the the withdrawal of entitled personnel had happened, but it was now a case of trying to shore up Freetown and protect 
the populace of Freetown from what was going to be certain massacre if the rebel forces made it that far south. And in, in so doing, you had to protect this village, this remote village, and stop the advance of the rebels. Absolutely. Um, we were at a choke point, so the rebels would have to have moved down the only viable route to Freetown as the jungle on either side was impenetrable. So we were there purely to block that movement at, at all costs. And it was literally 26 against 2,000, was it? 26 of us flew into the jungle, yes. Um, all intelligence reports at that point counted the availability of, of fighters to the IUF at 2,000. So how did you do it? I mean, I know you got the villagers on board, didn't you? How did they help you, first of all? At the end of the 48-hour period, when it became very evident and when we were told by radio messages that we would be staying, it's the realisation then that our limited numbers, our limited equipment and weapons and ammunition would not be enough on its own to stop mm. a force of, of that number from moving south. We then, um, through a relationship and fostering links with the locals, constant dialogue and informing them that we were going to be their only chance, they really needed to get on board and help us to make the jungle uh, or make that position uh, more defendable. And so what did they do for you? Um, uh, originally, they, they, they brought us water and, and, and they helped to, to, to gather food for us. Then they helped to, under our guidance, cut back the jungle to open up areas so that we could actually engage the rebels. So clearing back the jungle, opening up routes... We then decided that what we needed to do was channel rebels into positions where we could bring down the maximum amount of fire to corral them in areas. In order to do that, we had to isolate areas of jungle to their movement. So we got them to cut the local wood from the jungle, which was bamboo, uh, to cut down those lengths and sharpen the end of it and under our direction, plant fields of it to restrict that movement. And the moment you did succeed, what happened at that moment and how did you react? The rules of engagement for us were very, very tight and, and quite unclear, which meant that we could only engage rebel forces when we'd actually been fired upon. So we almost had to let the rebels get so close to us and actually engage us before we could return fire. They did so in the early hours of the 17th of May as they moved onto our position and engaged one of our forward sentry locations. And that was the moment? And that was the moment that allowed us to return fire, yes. And when you realised that you had saved this village, how did they react? What did you do? The next morning, uh, as people were starting to move into the village from the outlying areas, uh, you know, it was it was quite clear on their face. It was euphoria. They'd managed to survive a rebel attack, which had never happened. Usually when the rebels move on a village, everybody dies. Um, so to them, to, to still be alive after a, after a fight with the rebels was, was quite a one-off. With the benefit of 14 years to reflect on this, what difference do you think you made to the outcome of the Civil War? On a number of levels, at the same time this was happening, Ford Sanke was arrested, which brought about, uh, they cut the head off the snake. That then left the leadership of the RUF to fall into disrepair and and with us stopping them there that night I think they lost the stomach for a fight and a full move on Sierra Leone um, so it is clear that that one small action bloodied their nose enough for them to lose the heart for a fight 
especially against um, you know, British forces. Steve Heaney, thank you very much for your time today. And Stephen's book, Operation Mayhem, is available in hardback now. This is BFBS. Sit rep. President Barack Obama has vowed to punish those responsible for alleged misconduct at hospitals for U.S. military veterans. It's his first public comment on reports that officials at a hospital in Arizona covered up long waiting lists. There are also allegations that up to 40 veterans could have died while waiting for treatment. Simon Marks is Bureau Chief at Feature Story News and joins us from Washington. Simon, hello. And what's going on? Well, Kate, President uh, Obama was really forced to come to the podium yesterday, uh, but there's no question that he was trying to thread a needle very carefully here amid growing concern over the treatment of veterans at military health facilities across the country, uh, including an allegation that in Phoenix, officials kept a secret treatment list uh, in complete contravention of the rules as they became uh, overwhelmed with demand for services. President Obama told reporters yesterday he's going to get to the bottom of it. When I hear allegations of misconduct, any misconduct, whether it's allegations of VA staff covering up long wait times or cooking the books, I will not stand for it. Uh, our veterans deserve to know the facts. Their families deserve to know the facts. Once we know the facts, I assure you, if there is misconduct, it will be punished. But the president said part of the problem is supply and demand, a service that has to provide 85 million appointments a year, the growing needs created, of course, by veterans returning from Iraq and Afghanistan. But he also said he recognizes there is a potential scandal here. He made it pretty clear that General Eric Shinseki, uh, the head of the Veteran Affairs Administration, no longer seems to have his full confidence, and there are now multiple inquiries going on into precisely what's occurred. Christopher, we're always led to believe that American veterans get the best of everything. We're always led to believe that the Americans get the best of it, whether they're <laughs> veterans or anything else. Um, no, you, I mean, it's a huge country. I mean, it's a dull thing to say, but it is a huge country. So to you're get not surprised organized. by this? Not at all surprised by it. I mean, I was, uh, this is a few years ago, I went to a, 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 a vet hospital, uh, well, two of them, one in Colorado and then one in Washington State. And talking to guys there, and you would think that they just had been abandoned in many ways. I mean, it was it was back to the sort of things that you used to see after the Vietnam War. Guys were sort of with uh, pretty scruffily dressed, uh, some in chairs, some limbless, but beards, long hair, etc. And you thought, this is something which you can imagine a Spielberg coming in to film. Mm. But... Uh, it has got better, the organisation, but a lot of it still depends, just as it does in the United Kingdom, uh, it depends on the voluntary uh, voluntary groups. groups. Now, the, uh, the veterans' aid groups are, again, very good, but they're losing people who will organise, and that is one of, the, one, of, one of the difficulties. A lot of the old vet organisers, frankly, are dead or dying, and the, uh, and the thing's not organised so much, and the state doesn't put so much in since 2008 and the economic tightening. Simon, I said earlier that uh, there were allegations that up to 40 veterans might have died while waiting for treatment. How could that have happened? Well, that is still a contested number, uh, and the Department of Defence Inspector General is now compiling in a report into exactly what happened and the extent to which delayed treatment or even denied treatment may have contributed to the deaths of veterans. Uh, I think it's important to underscore this is a huge political issue here. Republicans are circling. They're threatening to make life problematic for Barack Obama over this. And remember, this isn't happening in a vacuum. We're just a few months away 
away from midterm elections, and this could be a a very potent political issue on the campaign trail. And, and Simon, do you, do you get the the impression briefly whether there's the tip of the iceberg or whether there's more to come? Oh, I think there's almost certainly more to come. People are just beginning to dig into this topic, dig into this story, and in a sense, the president's appearance at the White House yesterday, he had to make it, uh, only serves to fuel that. All right, Simon Marks, thank you very much for your time today. Um, Christopher, before we finish today, um, just look around and other stuff that's going on. There's this uh, accusations of cyber spying. Um, just tell me a bit about this, the spat between China and the okay, United the, States. The Americans have, uh, uh, Americans have clocked about uh, nine uh, people, Chinese, and they say they are in charge. Oh, it's but nine now, is it? Yeah, in, in charge of charge with an organisation which is just out of, outside of Shanghai, which has got a number 69877, which is that uh, people have been sort of getting into American uh, systems. The Chinese are saying, well, hang on. You've been doing this now for about 40 years. My understanding is that the Americans are particularly upset, though, because it's about getting commercial advantage, a state getting commercial advantage. Is that what's different? Yeah, it's not as much a state getting... Uh, it's a different organisations getting commercial advantages. In fact, what's, what there's... If you, if you look at this very carefully, what they're doing is what we're all doing. It's like the way that we spy on the French and the French spy on us and we spy on the Americans and the Americans spy on us. And that goes on all the time. But the difference is that the Americans have indicted these guys... And if they could get their hands on them, they'd take them, put them in court. Could, could there really be anything done about it, then? Uh, Did... Probably not, because they're not about to visit the United States. But they <laughs> might pick up... Sorry, they may have a reserve list, and this is the uh, theory. They've got a reserve list of people who might come to the United States, and if they did, they would throw the book at them. Very difficult to sort of uh, uh, understand whether that would actually work in practice. But it, it's just bringing out something which is done. And, the, in fact, the new one of the new game shows at the moment shows you exactly how... To do it, and anybody who turns around London, look on the posters and all the undergrounds. And if you want to do join the hackers, you can. And the Americans, by the way, just finally, the Americans You've are got now five letting, seconds. the Americans are now encouraging hackers who smoke dope to do the hacking for them. And now I say goodbye. That's it. Sports, sports and music, music for the British forces. This.